0: Listener
1: Production. I can't understand the law. How can a man be out for 15 years after he's murdered two people, my opinion? We don't know what else he's done. How come he's walking around a free man? Um, And I believe, you know, in a couple of years he's out of parole and he will do what he likes when he likes.
2: Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand, and this is the case of Lucille Butterworth, episode six. I've been doing more research on this case since I published the first five episodes of this series. As you'll recall, this is the story of a beautiful 20-year-old girl who vanished in 1969 from a street in Hobart. The police had a suspect who confessed to the murder, but they did nothing. And after decades in jail for another murder, he's free... The case has divided and nearly destroyed Lucille's family, but they fight on. In 2010, one officer and a team of cops working part-time put a compelling case to bring this man, Geoffrey Charles Hunt, to justice. But authorities say they need to see Lucille's remains before they'll prosecute him. And so, the case is back on the shelf pending new evidence.
0: Well as I said, you produce body evidence have I having any, any involvement with this lady and put it on the table now. Well, this is going on to take bloody long.
2: I'm back in Hobart for the first time in six months and much has happened. For one thing, Lucille's brother Jimmy is planning his funeral. His prostate cancer has spread through his body and he tells me he's only got months to live. So, in typical Jimmy fashion, he's getting busy. He and his daughter Cassie Lee are onto every aspect.
1: Well, my daughter, Cassie Lee, she uh, went and arranged everything when we found out I was terminally ill and uh, she has got the site picked out and uh, got the montage done, the food organised, the speeches and all that, you know, you know I've got to pay people to come to my funeral, that's not the only problem. I don't think you'll be paying anyone.
2: We're in Jimmy's back garden looking at his latest idea. It's a very large and impressive water feature that's set to tower over his
1: grave. It's simply a, an urn-shaped thing with, yeah. uh, with a bit of water dribbling down over it. It's, it's a couple of metres high. It's a substantial yeah. uh, monument. But uh, it's all been planned and uh, within days of us finding out that, that this cancer's terminal, yeah. Was that a shock for you to discover that? Because yeah. you had it for a little while? Not really. It had to come sooner or later. Simple. And we all know where we're going, so... <laughs> and I guess you're a guy that, that, that um,
2: takes care of business. You've been a doer. You've been active all your life. And so, mm. you know, is
1: there a sense of unfinished business? Oh, there's a couple of things, yeah. yeah and uh, I shouldn't talk about them, though. It might be bad for me. <laughs> there's something hanging
2: over this conversation. It's Jim Butterworth's fear that he'll die before his sister's killer is brought to justice. His father Bruce and stepmother Wynne went to their graves without knowing that Hunt was even a suspect. And perhaps Jimmy will follow them before Hunt has his day in court. This is how these cases end. Public interest in Lucille will move on after everyone who knew and cared about her eventually dies. Jimmy's not prepared to let her go that easily.
1: Lucille has never had children. She's never... Uh, had a wedding, Wynn and my father never had grandchildren, she's lost everything and she's just thrown, like, dumped into the edge of the river and uh, obviously still there. How do you come to terms with that?
2: It's been tough for Jimmy since my investigation was published. The breakthrough that he hoped for from the publicity hasn't come as yet. I went to see David Plumpton, the straight-talking cop who investigated Lucille's case for the coroner in 2010. He's three years retired now, but meets Jimmy for coffee every fortnight.
3: He's never seen him so flat. Bearing in mind, this has happened to him on a number of occasions. Yeah. Someone somehow takes him to the top of the mountain and then he gets booted down again. And he has to recover. But here's the difference. Jimmy Butterworth climbs to the top of the mountain whilst he can but as both you and I know, Jimmy Butterworth is terminally ill. So that mountain is about to become unclimbable. This is about now. Jimmy Butterworth, if there's any way, shape, or form, we can help Jimmy Butterworth climb that mountain one more time and see the other side. Now I'm saying i King. But he keeps going.
2: So that's what I'm doing back here in Hobart, trying to help Plumpton to get Jimmy and the rest of the Butterworth family back to the mountaintop. Everything seems in ruins now. Two days before my visit, Jimmy was dealt another blow. His son Stephen, aged in his 50s, died after a long battle with cancer.
1: It, yeah, it's a terrible shame, but uh, yeah, he was only 56. Yeah, no, it, it's not, not easy. And... The other son was a few years back. He also died.
2: There are days since his own diagnosis when Jimmy feels he has nothing left to lose and his thoughts turn to Geoffrey Hunt living in a small town on Tasmania's northwest coast. The coroner forbade publication of the address but it seems a lot of people know where he lives, including Jimmy.
1: have certainly been days where I wouldn't have hesitated to do something and there's no risk about that. But you've got to think of your family, you've got to think of the people you're going to leave and they'll be talked about. Uh, and they'll been warned and warned, but there certainly days that the family or anything else doesn't matter. Two weeks earlier, I had an anxious phone call
2: from David Plumpton to say that Jimmy was missing. He'd taken off from his home in Hobart
3: without telling his family. He'd phoned me from the northwest coast of Tasmania, where he had never been before, from the same town where Mr Geoffrey Hunt lives and said, I'm up here. Why on earth, Jimmy? Why come back to Hobart? For him, it was to have a look at this area where Hunt lived, see the house. So I spoke to him for some time. And I've got to say, my thought at the time was, yeah, he's gone up there for another reason. To do harm to Hunt? Harm to Hunt, yeah. And possibly to himself after. I'd only caught up with Jimmy the previous day and... We'd spoken at length about my life in general and his illness and um, Lucille. So he was introspective uh, about everything there. Well, I really went up to see
1: the town, see where he lived, I photographed where he lived.
3: Didn't mean I was going to, at that stage, go and do anything. But I'm settled down with that until his wife and daughter phoned to say, we can't get out of Jimmy. So, what do you mean you can't get out of Jimmy? He's uh, in this town. What's he gone up there for? Well, wouldn't you know? No, no, he's just headed off. So, oh, dear, 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 dear. Then they indicate to me his medication and alcohol are missing. Oh, dear. So my advice was immediately: let's contact the police. Let's look for Jimmy. Let's get someone to go around to this northwest town and uh, tidy this up in a bit of a hurry. Did you
1: have a clear intention when you went up there? No, not really. Because you didn't tell anyone. That that was the alarming part. I didn't tell anyone. That's why I wanted it to go the way it went. Exactly. I went up there to uh, just have a look around and it did alarm people back here. But, you know, over Lucille, I don't care who gets alarmed.
2: Jimmy's first stop was in a pub in the main street where he began asking if people knew Hunt and where he could be found. There were
1: some fairly motorbikey, wild-looking fellows. and they mumbled together and they were all nodding their head and mumbling across the bar and, yeah, they all knew this fellow. Oh, we know where he is, yeah. Jimmy set off in driving rain. I drove into a Side Street to turn around and there was a lady walking by and it wasn't good weather and I put the window down and, oh, excuse me, and she said, oh, I've lived here for years, you know, are you looking for anybody in particular? I know a few people around there. I said, yes, I'm looking for somebody you might have heard of, Jeffrey um, uh, Charles Hunt. Oh, Yes. Well, go along the straight part of the road and when you enter the circle, on the left-hand side, about the third house in, that's where he lives. We know all about him. So how long did you spend outside his house, Jimmy? Probably half an hour
2: or more. By this time, the local police had been called about the potential threat to hunt, but they made no appearance, at least while Jimmy was there. And he could tell someone was at home. The front windows of the house were all covered in makeshift curtains made from bed sheets, just as when I visited last year. But the side windows
1: offered a different view. I pulled to the further side so you could actually see the side windows. And um, the curtains moved quite a bit. So I'm assuming from that that he's been looking out when I pulled up. And when he seen the car and me, um, he's let the curtains go because they were swaying. As he walked round and around the property, Jimmy could see that there were no coverings on the
2: back windows, but he could see no one inside. He did another lap and he saw more signs of life. When I went round and come back, he'd put up
1: curtains. You think that he saw you? Yeah, I hope he did. And he saw you at the coroner's inquest? He did. um, So he would recognise you? I said a a few words to him at the coroner's inquest as he was leaving. So what made you turn around and come back home? Well, I I didn't want to stay any longer, so I don't trust myself. And so I thought, it's time to go home. So you thought if you did stay longer, there's a possibility that things might have got out of hand? It might have got out of hand.
2: Jimmy was finally located through the Find My iPhone app when he was nearly home, having driven through torrential rain all the way back.
3: So, he's back. Why did you go up there, Jimmy? Having a look. Wanted a it? Just needed to? All of this type of thing. So... I have a long chat to him about that, about, hey, listen, did you go up there to kill yourself? Because it turns out he hadn't taken his medication with him and he hadn't taken any alcohol up there with him. That was a mistake on behalf of the family and they're panicked to a degree. Yeah, he's not a murderer, but he's now a man with terminal cancer, so um, if that changes who or what he is and whether he'd see it as murder is another matter.
2: Police could put a restraining
1: order on him, but Jimmy says that would be futile. Well, with the condition that i got and the time I've got, it's quite possible I could go back up again. If there was a restraining order, so be it. Um, So, yeah, he's probably a worried man. And if he's worried about things happening uh, in the future, he should worry. I rang Jimmy's half-brother, John,
2: to tell him what had happened.
3: I'm I'm, totally aghast. I don't know what to say to that. I know he has in the past huh, we've all had fantasies but I guess that's the difference between a criminal murderer and one that's not I mean it's, it's just a fantasy I don't understand how that's going to achieve anything.
2: This is why I just feel that there's such an urgency about getting things before the court or getting a, some kind of result otherwise these possibilities unfortunately are there. <laughs> Well, Jim, it's the uh, 25th of August, 2018. This is the 49th anniversary of Lucille's disappearance. We're out here at the monument that you uh, erected to her memory uh, here on the Lyle Highway, where we believe the culprit, Geoffrey Hunt, disposed of her body. It's, it's It's a very poignant reminder of what happened. How are you feeling, Jimmy?
1: Well... If we had closure, I'd be feeling a lot better. If we had Hunt back in jail where he should be, I'd feel even better still. But when I look at a photograph there,
3: she's still, she's forever young. And that's lovely. I don't want people to come forward in sympathy of Jimmy Butterworth and go, ah, oh, listen, Hunt did this, Hunt did that. I want them to come forward and say, this is where Lucille is. Mm. This is what I saw, this will take you to Lucy." Because that's more important. It's all well and good people can have their shots at Hunt all they like. Unless he confesses. If he wants to come forward and tell me that, that's a different thing. But now let's find Lucille Butterworth and work back from that. Mm. And if necessary, connect Hunt to that, because that's solid.
2: Plumpton's right. The Tasmanian Director of Public Prosecutions has made it clear Hunt will not be charged unless Lucille's remains are found or he or someone else confesses. And I was told by police media that there's no longer an active investigation underway. So, it's up to the public and the media to generate any new leads for the police to follow. I'm going to be exploring an alternative crime scene that was first raised in the coroner's inquest but is yet to be searched. The file was in that state for decades, pretty much. yeah, yeah, yeah. Until you put a team on it, working part time, yes. look what they came up with. This case rewards a little bit of endeavor and a bit of dash. No doubt
3: that did occur, but then there was a lot missing. It can be argued that what was missing has been obtained. We pursued the opportunity of people coming forward, and they did. Some with very, very good information. And it took right until the coronial inquest for prisoners to come forward. Has that been exhausted? That's the question. At the time, we were quite busy following up on things. But things do exhaust themselves. Has this been exhausted totally? Well, we'll find out soon because this podcast is out there. It's apparent that as a result of the podcast, people have come forward and given information.
2: Police are tight-lipped about who's come forward, but I believe one is a former prison guard from Hayes Prison Farm. I understand that he told police he had a conversation with Geoffrey Hunt in the late 1990s. It was about the same time that police were digging a site near the Boyer paper mill on the far side of the river from where Plumpton's team searched in 2015. They only found horse bones, but the guard told police that Hunt had remarked, they were looking on the wrong side of the river. And I understand that this guard gave police a note he made after the conversation. It's not much, but if it is true, it confirms what we already know. In the right circumstances, Hunt will open up on what happened to Lucille. Let's go back to July 1976, and the night that Jeffrey Hunt was arrested for the murder of Susan Knight. He readily confessed to the crime to two detectives, Ken O'Garry and Barry Dillon. Under questioning, he also admitted to killing Lucille seven years earlier. But as we know, the inspector on duty, Orb Canning, talked Hunt out of his confession and he finally withdrew it. O'Garry and Dillon then drove Hunt to where he killed Susan Knight at Dromedary to continue
3: that investigation. So when we went up the um, the opposite side of the river, because that's where... He murdered the girl. The dromedary. Dromedary. Yeah. We went up that side of the river, and then we come back uh, the main road. We said, "I oh, will pull in. We'll get him to show us where he dumped his body on the way back, because he'd already told us roughly where it was." So uh, then he said, "I'll oh, pull in here or something like that." So I was driving at the time, so pulled in, and then uh, uh, when we mentioned it to him, you know, "Can you show us now?" He just shut up.
2: Wouldn't say anything. This was the site known as the layby. Hunt refused to get out of the car, and so that was all police had to go on. Four decades later, Plumpton's team dug that site extensively, based on the information O'Gary provided, but they found nothing. However, there is another place on the outskirts of New Norfolk. It's a track that back in 1969 ran off the highway and reached almost down to the river. Today it's thick bushland, and access to the river is via another lane 200 metres further away out of town. It runs past a local attraction, The Big Log, which, as the name suggests, is a very big piece of wood. And
0: I said, where did you murder her? And he told me that he knew her and blah, blah, blah. i known her for a while.
2: The old track interests me because of what Philip Harris told me in episode four. Harris was a rapist doing time in Risdon Jail, where he met Jeff Hunt in the prison hospital. He claimed that Hunt gave him some very specific details about where he murdered Lucille and disposed of her body.
0: And he said he picked her up. We was going back home to New Norfolk, turned off just before New Norfolk and went down a bush track.
2: There was only one track leading to the river in 1969, just as there is today. Even if the location of where it begins has changed, its destination is the same.
0: With her strangled in the car, he drove down the end of the track and then he pulled her out of the car and then he bagged her in the bushes and left there. And I thought to myself, well, it must be near the river somewhere.
2: If Hunt had killed Lucille in the lay-by, as he told O'Gary, he had to gamble that no-one saw his car parked in full view of the road. If Hunt had chosen to go down the lane that he allegedly told Harris about, he would have been quickly out of sight of traffic passing on the highway. I asked locals about their memories of the old track. Ted Collins grew up around the corner from the Hunt family.
0: Can you remember what was there in 1969? a all. There was a little slip road that come down off the main road. But bugger all, just a fishing spot down in the corner. And that was a regular spot? People would go fishing there and whatever else? Yeah. yeah, back in those days. Well, it probably wasn't so regular back in those days because it wasn't until they opened it up that people you know, really accessed it sort of thing. Yeah, now it's busy, you've got the boat ramp there and there's parking and so forth. Yeah, 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 but before that there was nothing there.
2: I drove down the new track to the big log with Jimmy to test Harris's story on Hunt's confession. Jimmy has a strong emotional investment in the lay-by as the murder scene. He's built his monument there and after years of knowing nothing of Lucille's fate, the lay-by site still offers hope of a resolution, but he can see merit in the alternative. He says he drove down a track. He got to a point where he, he took Lucille out and he walked as far as he could until the mud was over his boots.
1: Will he be getting close to the river? Yeah. Uh, One thing we'll point out here is the fact that if you... I'll drive down here. I think it's close to the here? water, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost in the water here, folks. Yeah. Now, there. There's where the water is. You put your mind down to the site where he said he had her. How far from the water are we? Probably... You know, 20 feet or something. If we're 20 feet from the water. Now, when they did the dig, they were nowhere near 20 feet from the water. They were way, way back from there.
2: I also went around the site on foot with Jimmy's brother, John. Like me, he has doubts about the lay-by. I never ever thought it was down there. John thinks it's worth digging this new site too. This area of the Derwent has not changed much. This boat ramp wouldn't have been here. You come off the highway... Yeah. You can't see. And you can't even hear the highway. You're well away. You could do whatever you like, Danny, if there's nobody here. This location has never been searched, and there's been no follow-up by police on the information that Harris gave to the inquest. And that's not likely to change on present indications. Of course, this has been a familiar theme in this case from day one in 1969. If a confession to police could be ignored for 35 years, What's the chance that confession to an ex-inmate will be taken seriously? Tasmania police have refused my request for an interview on the matter. I've put questions in emails that have gone unanswered too. Here's the big question that I'd like an answer to. If Hunt knew about this location, which he almost certainly did, why would he choose the lay-by as the place to murder Lucille and dispose of her body? I have another problem with the lay-by theory. In episode two, we learnt that Hunt had led O'Gary and Dylan to the lay-by after he'd withdrawn his confession. According to O'Gary, Inspector Orb Canning had persuaded Hunt to shut up about Lucille. So, if he recanted his confession, it makes no sense that he would have then taken the cops to the location where he murdered Lucille. Why would he do that? Ted Collins says many in New Norfolk ask the same question.
0: I think he was thrown the scent. I think so. Yeah, I like to put money on it. The Australians had very, very, very devious man, from what I've
2: heard. So, yeah. Ted Collins has another reason to back Harris's big log theory. In 2005, he was managing the caravan park in New Norfolk. He had trouble with people coming in from Hobart and trashing the park and hooning up and down the Esplanade. So, he began to take note of vehicles.
0: You did take particular notice of who was around. was a bit like a Policeman because we was the only house on the Esper part of the time. And you began to see Geoffrey Hunt about. Well, every now and then I'd noticed there was a, a little, uh, I think it was a Toyota Stout or something, new. Uh, I think it was green, pretty sure, with a dog in the back of it, down at the old high data testing trip, all the big log as we call it now. And that vehicle was there. On, oh, quite a few cats. Someone in it, sitting in it all the time, sort of thing. Because we lived on this, we used to just take notice of things like that. Ted, what would there be down there to look at? I mean. Well, nothing. Nothing. It was just a little car park, a little lay car park. But a lot of people used to walk. There's a big walking track that runs right around. So a lot of the women used to walk their dogs and, and what have you down to the, through the wetlands and round the big circle, you see. But other than that, there's nothing, nothing down there. Um, the boat ramp wasn't even there at that
2: stage. At this time, Hunt had been free for about five years after his release from the nearby Hayes Prison Farm in 2000.
0: How many times would you have seen Hunt in that area which we now call it the Big Law? Oh, just about every time I would pass. So, you know, that's what sort of made me think
2: about it. It's a crime writer's cliche that criminals always return to the scene of the crime, but here was Hunt, day after day, looking at the river and the passers-by. You have to ask why. Did he have a sentimental attachment to this location? You
0: know, it wasn't long after that he'd moved his position onto the Esplanade, and that's when right. he started taking serious note. He had a dog on the back, and then there he was parked outside a toilet block on quite a few occasions like you know probably half a dozen occasions but i still kept an eye on him you know if there's nothing wrong he wouldn't get out of the car but um down the track, there was you know, some of the ladies who were walking their dogs. And all I said to them I said Yeah, what's that bloke doing down there? I said, Oh, he's a farmer from up the country. Um, he'd lost his wife, you know, so he just comes and sits down by the river.
2: I'd heard from someone else that Hunt had been passing himself off as a widowed farmer from Gretna, not far from New Norfolk. That
0: was it. it, was it something like that. Yeah, pretty well along those lines. Yep. Yeah, that's what I've heard from other people. And yep. uh, his brother had been a farmer, of a so he was in some ways assuming part of his brother's identity. Uh, yeah. Okay, you're spot on with that. You know, I'd heard reports of him from people up the valley that he'd followed some woman to the tip up there, you know, to the Hamilton tip and stuff like that too. So, you know, but the day I, I worked out who he was, I thought, well, you i in the way for this. So I thought, well, I went back up to the office and we have a, we have a gate which isolates the boat there in the caravan parks from the main road, and I closed it. And they said, i like close that. And he drove up, and straight through it, and drove
2: off. I guess he could argue, I've been out of jail now for 18 years, call it. Yes. And I've done nothing, I've no. not been arrested for anything. Do you think he's a miracle of rehabilitation?
3: No. What's he been up to all those years? Well, I, you don't know. I know initially he had difficulties in his... Parole was revoked um, for parent phone calls he made to um, females in and around um, the New Norfolk Hayes area, but again, that's 18 years ago. What were those phone calls? In telephone conversations with females, he became inappropriate. Grooming type or, but obviously not enough to charge him, but enough for the parole board to say, hey, listen, we're revoking this, He are coming back inside, and since that point in time, there's been um, nothing like that. And as you said, this is 18 years ago.
2: I tell Plumpton the story of Hunt's activities in New Norfolk and the day he crashed through the boom gate of the caravan park.
3: Yeah, and I can see Mr Hunt doing that, driving through the boom gate in a peak of anger because I don't think he can control his emotions. And that's where my argument is occurred with Lucille Butterworth and it certainly did with Susan Knight.
2: This begs the question of whether Hunt is still a risk to the community. If that potential for him to lose control is still there, could he kill again? Or pose a threat to women, even at the age of 68? He's eligible to complete his parole in 2020, but it's not automatic that it will be granted. And I wonder whether the community is ready for Jeffrey Hunt without supervision. A prison psychologist has deemed it unlikely that Hunt will ever re-offend. But tell that to Lucille's family. That's part of Jimmy's dying quest for justice. What if Hunt kills again while the system is falling over itself to
1: forgive and forget him? Oh, the poor fellow, he's had a bad upbringing and, you know, he's always done some time in jail. Well, how wonderful. This particular fellow shouldn't be out of the goddamn jail because I don't think that the community's safe even now from that fellow, even at his age now. He killed uh, Lucille, he killed Susan Knight. Who else has he killed? We don't know. The cop who knows him best, David Plumpton,
2: doesn't believe that Hunt has changed much. But you spent time up with him close. What's your gut feel about him?
3: He can explode. He can explode. I've seen him look on his face, I've seen him say things to others. I snap there for a minute and you think, yeah, for a brief moment, You've seen what Butterworth may have done, and Susan Knight certainly did, for a brief moment. But you see, because we're men, we're bigger, we're stronger, we didn't see it all like they did. We cannot know
2: what's in Jeffrey Hunt's mind. His defences are strong and he's easily deflected the attempts by police so far to extract another confession from him. But he has confessed before, at least four times, whether as a way to make friends in jail or out of a true sense of shame back in 1976.
0: Did you have shame? Oh, yes, well, I was felt bad about what I'd done. For whom? The, the victim's family and also the shame I brought down on my own family brothers and sisters and... I still
2: do feel shame. I'm not um, boasting or anything like that. I committed a crime, served time. Throughout his police interview, Hunt dissociated himself from the act of murder, but he at least seems to own the shame of killing Susan Knight. Prison psychologists deemed it unlikely that Hunt would reoffend when he was released. Today he knows he's in the spotlight and possibly assumes he's followed whenever he leaves his home. He's not about to spontaneously confess anytime soon. In my opinion, perhaps the only hope is a deal where he tells police where he disposed of Lucille. And in return, he's placed in a minimum security jail where he could even have some dogs again. But there hasn't been a prison farm in Tasmania since Hayes was shut down. At the end of this visit to Hobart, I felt like I was clutching at straws, trying to come up with something positive for Jimmy and his family. I went back to David Plumpton for a final debrief before I left Tassie. But I look at his life now though, he's up there in that northwestern town and doesn't have his dogs anymore. He
3: doesn't see anybody that we know of and... That wouldn't worry him. Out of all of this, name one person that has come forward to say, Jeff Hunt and I were friends at school. Jeff Hunt and I used to knock around together. Maybe people did, but they've dropped off him since he was convicted of murder. But generally, even murderers, a number of them, people will come forward and say, yeah, at school, I would never picked that. Or I used to knock around with him. Yeah, yeah, he was a funny bloke. Oh, I always knew, I always knew. No one does that with him. Even his family are split over him. Really? I thought they were all pretty much estranged from him. And they all think he's guilty. As families get older there's this I think desire to reconcile differences to say you've done your time, we've done the time as well but we're over, we're through that. We don't forgive you but we've forgiven ourselves and we're going along okay. I think there's an opportunity there for That Whether he wants that, that's Mr Hunt wants that, I don't know. So do you think the family's the best way through? Well, it's the only way through at the moment, isn't it? Like there's nothing else, nothing else.
2: It's easy to forget that this is a tragedy which engulfed three families. The Hunts, like the Butterworths and the Knights, have never been the same again after what Geoffrey did. It's hard enough growing up different in a small country town without the shame and anger that have followed the Hunts since the 70s. Perhaps an appeal from his siblings might give Hunt some reason to seek redemption, even at this late stage. Or perhaps they could help. I pondered that with Jimmy at the memorial on the 49th anniversary of that terrible day. There you are. Well, it's so frustrating because, Jimmy, you know, there's unanswered questions. Like, when Hunt came back, when he killed Susan Knight, he was shaking and emotional. His brother immediately... Saw something was wrong, and he knew that he'd done something. When he heard that this, there'd been a murder, he said, yeah, I think my brother's done it. So what happened in 69 when, when
1: this was his first kill? Was he um, wandering around and in a shaking and upset and right. whatever, and somebody might have seen him doing that? Somebody might have seen him on that night. Family members or (coughs) someone who might have lived next door in Station
2: Street. So Mm. what we're trying to do is just reach out to people in New Norfolk, and some of them are not even in New Norfolk anymore, Mm. people who lived in uh, that street, and to say, well, did anything
1: strike us out of the ordinary that that day or any day after? No. uh, Well, I hope that somebody does come forward and has the gumption to do just that you know it's a long time ago and they should have maybe they thought they should have come forward before but what we're praying for now asking for now please come forward now and uh, let us know what you know about uh, the movements of hunt or anything about the case at all are you scared about going before you get the answer to Lucille's story oh, absolutely I'd love to do that but so would my father so would win uh, would love to have got that answer, uh, but it was all there to be had, but of course it was never acted on in the early stages, mm. but the, uh, these later uh, uh, cold case detectives uh, have done a magnificent job in getting it where it is, and now we just hope that maybe the public will uh, finish it off and come forward.
2: I think there's still a real chance of resolving Lucille's case. I made an appeal for information through Facebook and I was pleased with how many people came forward from across Tasmania and beyond to help solve this 50-year-old mystery. If you have any information or you know someone else that does, it doesn't matter how trivial, please get in contact with me. Lucille Butterworth must not be forgotten. It's time for her to come home. Phil Butterworth is a real crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing, and original score by Matt Nikolich. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Billy Simons. If anything in this production has raised issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Listener.